Hello, and welcome to Pod Academy. It's one of the most controversial weapons used by the US. Drone strikes now take place in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Yemen, and Somalia. To some, including the US government, it's a vital piece of modern weaponry in the global war on terror. Yet detractors point out the ambiguity of drone use under international law, and how each strike galvanizes potential recruits for Al-Qaeda. In this lecture, part of our SOAS lecture series, Professor David Luban, a leading scholar of international law and the use of force, focuses on the moral and legal issues of drone warfare. I want to start with a story, a story that was uh, published in the New York Times uh, last summer about uh, inside the White House, how are drone targets chosen? And uh, in the story, what we learned about was meetings in the White House, Terror Tuesdays, in which uh, nominations for drone attacks were chosen. The big revelation of this story was that on any case that was in the least bit contestable, the president himself would eventually review the evidence and make the decision. But there was another aspect to the story which was quite remarkable, which was that the president was somebody who was there as a moral backstop to issue a veto when the evidence wasn't absolutely straightforward, absolutely clear. And the article said that the president was a student of just war theory who read St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas. I want to focus on some of the moral issues because it seems to me that even the legal issues are ultimately moral issues. So what I'm going to be talking about is just war theory and drones. I mean, just war theory is a certain subset of moral philosophy. The drone program is uh, using unmanned aerial vehicles, uh, the Predator and Reaper, which are pilotless airplanes about uh, 30 feet long, which have Hellfire missiles on them, and circle for hours on end overhead with a remote operator, usually back in the United States who is sitting at a screen with headphones and piloting the drone. The drone can do almost endless amounts of surveillance it, you know, because it doesn't have a pilot who's in it. There's no element of human exhaustion that comes in, and it can uh, kill, from, kill from the sky. The program's been going on for, since 2004, mostly in Pakistan, but also in Yemen, and most, more recently in Somalia, where there have been uh, drone strikes reported against uh, the uh, uh, Islamist group uh, Shabab. Now, drone strikes are kind of an overlapping category with targeted killings. Targeted killing obviously doesn't have to be done by a drone. And some of the United States drone strikes are what the military calls personality strikes. It means here's a particular person we have surveillance on, we have evidence on, so we claim, uh, who is an al-Qaeda leader who can't be captured. That's part of the claim that's built into uh, the need to use lethal force who are going to kill. 
But there are also what are called signature strikes. Signature strike means it's not an identifiable individual. It's an identifiable pattern of behavior. And these are much, much more controversial in many ways. They're sketchier. The pattern of behavior, what are we talking about? Well, one that would be more or less uncontroversial from the point of view of the law of war would be a truckload full of heavily armed men heading toward the Afghan border. And that might be innocent, but it does have the signature of combatants that are heading for the border to enter into the fight, and those would be a legitimate military target. That's part of the U.S. claim. So signature strikes are not targeted killings, and some targeted killings are not drones. The targeted killing of Osama bin Laden obviously was not done by drones. Now, um, who actually is carrying out these drone operations? They're, they're basically carried out by the, by the CIA, which is not military, and by uh, the special forces, which is military. And one of the, I think, most problematic aspects of the drone program is that there is very little knowledge about who is doing what. I mean, these seem like parallel organizations, and the parallel organizations both have their own sets of drones, both have their own kill lists, and uh, both of them are rather secretive. There's very, there's very little sense of accountability. Now, one of the themes you're going to hear me coming back to again and again is how little we who aren't in the U.S. government actually know. There's a, a term that's sometimes used, uh, double-hatting. Double-hatting means when somebody who is in the military is now detailed to the CIA or vice versa so that they're wearing two hats. They're governed by two, bo two distinct bodies of U.S. domestic law. But uh, all in all, it's a, a program in which the lines of accountability are very hard to draw and it's, uh, you know, one can conjecture that that's deliberate, that it's intentional, that it's very hard to figure out who is behind any particular strike. Now, what I think almost everybody knows is that the drone program, which began under uh, the Bush administration, has ramped up dramatically in the Obama administration. One of the, the databases, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism here in London, uh, says that since uh, the 2004, there have been 352 U.S. drone attacks uh, in Pakistan. And of them, 300 have come in the Obama administration. So this has become the Obama administration's weapon of choice in pursuing what it no longer calls the global war on terror. Okay, now, what are we talking about in terms of the magnitude of damage? How many strikes? How many casualties? How many of them are civilian casualties? That is incredibly hard for anybody to know because uh, when a drone strikes, oftentimes it's in a fairly remote area where outside observers have a hard time getting in. We're talking about the tribal areas in, uh, in northwest uh, Pakistan. And uh, when the observers come in, they have to take the word of people on the ground about who is a civilian, who is a militant, who is al-Qaeda, who not. We don't know how reliable the reporting is. <clears throat> the United States government doesn't put boots on the ground to find out. They do have video feed. And that being said, there are counts, and there are three databases that have been kept for years. Basically, what we are talking about is drone strikes in the low couple of hundreds, 200 to 300 to 400 drone strikes. 
Total number of people killed, 2,000 to 4,000. Civilian casualty estimates that are ranging from 5% of the the people killed civilians to 25% or even higher because there are other organizations beside the three that keep databases that are reporting higher civilian casualty counts. But once again, it is really hard to know. And it's doubly hard to know because it's extremely controversial who counts as a civilian and who not. And that's something that I want to come back to shortly. And I think one other thing that's worth saying, and I'll come back to this later as well. So far, I've just talked about people killed. But obviously, people killed is not the only damage that drones do. There are people who are not killed but badly injured. There's property destroyed. There are other consequences for the communities that are targeted by drones, and those are very important to keep in mind. Okay, now, that's, that's the factual background. Several hundred drone strikes, several thousand casualties, civilian casualty rates ranging up to around one in five. Now, basic just war criterion for when war can be waged of the last 60 years is very straightforward. You need a just cause. There are other conditions besides just cause. You need a just cause, and the only just cause that's acceptable is self-defense, starting with the United Nations Charter, but among theorists even before that, the idea is that no first use of force is justifiable unless it it could be subsumed under self-defense. The United Nations Charter bans all use of force and threatened use of force. It has that one exception. Um, This is in uh, Article 51 of the UN Charter that uh, um, there's an inherent right of self-defense that states still possess. Now, at this point, let me give the United States government's view about what's going on with the drone campaign. The U.S. view is that everything that it's doing is, uh, falls under Article 51 of the U.N. Charter, that, in fact, the United States is doing nothing but fighting a war of self-defense, and that that's what the drone attacks are about. Now, why? Well, because the states that the drone attacks are being carried out in Pakistan... Yemen, Somalia are unwilling or unable to control al-Qaeda within their territory. This is the kind of buzzword or legalistic catchphrase that's used by the United States government. And the U.S. view is spelled out in speeches by a number of U.S. officials over the last two years has been that the United States is at war with al-Qaeda and it can use force to defend itself, and it can use force in the territory of any country that is unwilling or unable to deal with al-Qaeda by itself. Now, um, this unwilling and unable criterion is something that lawyers argue about ferociously. It actually goes all the way back to St. Augustine, whose idea of a just war was actually when you can launch a war against a prince, if that prince has armed groups within his territory that are harming you and won't do anything about it. That is a just cause for war. And at one point, uh, Augustine almost gives that as the definition of a just war. Now, what about the objection that the drone attacks are violating the sovereignty of Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia? Uh, Here, the United States government offers two answers. One is uh, that the unwilling or unable criterion means 
that the inherent right of self-defense applies, and that is a place that a sovereign state can use force against another sovereign state. But there's also a strong sense that these three states have consented to have the drones drones used in their territory. There are dozens of reports that Pakistan, Yemen, and to the extent that there is a government in Somalia, have given secret consent to the United States to use drones. The Bureau of Investigative Journalism reports a number of cases in which the Pakistani government has not only approved the U.S. use of drones, but given the intelligence. I mean, here's where the person is. Here's the information we have about him. Go get him. One of the kind of rumors is that these consents have always been conditioned on the United States government not admitting that it was actually doing it. Okay. And that was, from the legal point of view, a catch-22 for the United States government. Without consent, then it might be a violation of state sovereignty. But the consent means don't admit it. So how can you admit it? And uh, I've heard U.S. government lawyers say that that was the reason that there was almost complete silence about the drone program for years. And in fact, it's only been within the last year that the United States government has even officially admitted that it had such a drone program. Now, my view is that there is significant merit to the U.S. position that, um, so that the drones are in self-defense in at least some cases. I mean, I think the most notable one is in Yemen, because in Yemen, of course, there, there were three, at least three terror bomb attempts. There was the, uh, the underwear bomber trying to bring down an airliner. There was the printer cartridge bomber who'd packed explosives and mailed them to a synagogue in Chicago. And then there was a third case that was reported last May of another underwear bomber that was captured because the person that he was dealing with was actually a Saudi spy and who had a kind of explosive that was designed to evade airline security. So it seems to me that these are very real attacks. I mean, this isn't, this isn't just a uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. We're going to come up with some pretext and go in. I mean, these were real attacks that happened, and it... Uh, I think that a, a legitimate government always has to try to defend its people when somebody is launching an armed attack on them. Now, so that's all I want to say about the, the actual justification for the use of force. I think that what's more significant is not the question of when a state can use force, but how it can fight. Uh, in the terms of the just war theory, this is called use in bello, justice in war, rather than use ad bellum, which is the justice of war, when war can actually be raised. Now, the single most important rule in the use in bellow actually is not one that comes out of any of the just war classics. Uh, it's simply, thou shalt not target noncombatants. Noncombatants means civilians or soldiers who have surrendered or who are wounded. Thou shalt not target Noncombatants. The way that the law of war puts it is this. This is from the Geneva Convention's additional protocol. Military shall at all time distinguish between the civilian population and combatants and between civilian objects and military objectives and accordingly shall direct their operations only against military objectives to do otherwise is to commit a war crime. Now, there are big problems in figuring out you know, a conflict against a non-state actor who is a civilian and who counts as a civilian? Obviously, Al-Qaeda is not wearing uniforms. An Al-Qaeda 
operative may not be full-time. Um, in the words of the Red Cross, they might not have a continuing combat function. And how do you tell? Now, the United States government has asserted in court documents that al-Qaeda has no civilian wings, so that issue doesn't arise, but it's never made its evidence or its reason for making that assertion public. And it's not at all clear in Yemen, at least, that that's true. At least the news reports that I've seen said that uh, as al-Qaeda has gotten more traction in Yemen, it's taken on more and more governance and social welfare functions and actually has what you might call a civilian wing. Now, I think the biggest problem with figuring out who's a civilian and who isn't that's come out in recent months is the way in which the CIA counts civilians after a drone strike. And uh, the same news article that I mentioned at the beginning about Obama making his decisions at Terror Tuesday um, had one electrifying revelation in it, which is that uh, the CIA, uh, if it if it encounters uh, a case of uncertainty, counts that person as a combatant, not as a civilian. Now, since then, government lawyers have indignantly denied that and said the reporter got it wrong. The State Department legal advisor speaking at my home university last month when somebody asked them about that said, it's completely false. But I don't know whether it's true, and this is one of these places in which the incredible lack of transparency in what the United States government has been doing is, once again, I think, really damaging. It's completely contrary to U.S. military doctrine. Military doctrine says that in a case of uncertainty about whether somebody's a civilian or a combatant, you always assume they're a civilian. But this news article said that the CIA, which isn't governed by military doctrine, might be doing it the other way around. Now think what that means. It means that uh, a drone strike hits, and there's video feed, and there are corpses. And the corpses that you see include military-aged men. Well, what does that mean? I assume that means any man who's between the age of 15 and 50. And in case of uncertainty, let's just say that that was a combatant. In that case, when you're trying to figure out what the collateral damage, the unintended civilian casualties were, you get very few civilians, and you get a lot of combatants, and you get to come out and announce, well, we, we never, we hardly ever kill civilians, but in fact that's because of an artifice of the counting, and I think that this is, uh, you know, this is a huge problem if it's true, and it would be even more huge if the president is then relying on this in order to make his own decisions in cases of uncertainty, because then what he's got is the CIA coming to him and saying, uh, well, we hardly ever get civilians. Almost everybody we've hit is a combatant. If it really means any military-age man, well, that, that's, that's a, a cheat. Okay, now, I mentioned collateral damage, and this is, I think, the next major theme in both the just war theory and the law of war. Um, I actually hate the term collateral damage because, to me, it sounds like one of these euphemisms that people use when what they really mean is dead and maimed civilians or people who are burying their children. Um, But I actually think that the law of war term, which is incidental damage, is even worse. 
And so I think we're just stuck with this term. Maybe, I mean, the more precise one would be unintended civilian damage. The additional protocol says that's not right. What it says is that disproportionate means excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage anticipated. But the idea is that if a military target is really important, then a certain amount of unintended civilian damage is lawful, but too many, too large civilian damage is unlawful. So disproportionate, excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage of destroying this target. Now, I think at this point we are getting into the heart of the problem with drone attacks and targeted killings, and I think even with the modern law of war itself, uh, because it turns us away from looking at the actual total human costs and instead in um, what I think of as a kind of lawyer's la-la land of proportionality calculations, as though there is such a thing as a proportionality calculation. Uh, you, you ask military lawyers, well, what's your rule? I mean, is it like 10 dead civilians for one dead target, or what are you talking about? And they all say, no, 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 no. We don't have a formula. If you don't have a formula, what exactly are you talking about? That's the, the la-la land part. But... Um, I mean, the, the problem is that we're moving away from a question which I think of as the basic human question, is this really awful, to a different one, which is, is this disproportionately awful? Now, in one way, that's inherent to the whole enterprise of moral judgments in war. I mean, look, in war, shit happens. The law of war is predicated on the idea that you're in an abnormal human situation in which awful and violent things happen to people. And if awful and violent things happen, um, you are discriminating between some awful and violent things that are acceptable, morally acceptable, and some that aren't. And then I suppose that proportionality makes sense as a way of talking about it. But it seems to me that when you've got something like the drone campaign, which goes on and on year after year, um, with one, let's give the U.S. government the benefit of the doubt for the sake of argument, one proportional attack after another, one lawful attack after another, the absolute magnitude of the damage, it seems to me, becomes morally relevant because the evils are piling up. Now, at this point, I want to talk a little bit more about what kind of damage besides actual deaths the drones do. The worry is that when they keep piling up year after year, that uh, the ability of communities to survive is undermined. So obviously, in addition to deaths and injuries, there's loss of homes in some of the poorest communities in the world. So homeless people, people driven out of their communities. Loss of property. More subtle bad effects. There have been numerous observers who were on the ground in the communities that are affected that say that they're living in a constant state of psychological trauma because they hear the drones buzzing around overhead. And parents who will not send their children to school because a drone is buzzing overhead. So the possibility of the children becoming educated and, uh, and developing the community is stunted and impaired. After a drone strike, there have been numerous reports that uh, people in the vicinity, well, I mean, these are kind of parallel, equal and opposite evils. One of them is uh, there must have been informants that let the Pakistani government and therefore the U.S. government know about them. So revenge against possible informants. 
Um, that's a, a, another kind of distant collateral effect. On the other side, people who are in the vicinity, you know, whose family have been killed by drones, uh, are stigmatized as terrorists because, after all, um, where there's smoke, there's fire. There was a drone, so these must be al-Qaeda. And al-Qaeda seems to be bringing these evils onto our community. And since they're bringing on onto the community, um, we don't want them in the community anymore. Uh, there are some anthropologists who say, look, these are communities in which part of the basic ethical framework is a kind of hospitality. Somebody comes to your house and you take them in. And of course now if you take in al-Qaeda, then you are a possible target for a signature strike. So that part of the community's fabric is undermined. And of course there might be the possibility of destabilizing a government which seems impotent to stop its own citizens from coming under foreign attack. There might be unfulfilled desires for vengeance or for justice. Now, all of this is being done in the name of eliminating terrorist attacks on the American homeland. Now, that's a legitimate goal. Reducing those kinds of attacks is a legitimate goal of government. Some might say that's the only legitimate or the first legitimate goal of any government is to safeguard its own citizens. The question is when it should stop. Um, now, last week, the, the Defense Department General Counsel Jay Johnson gave a talk at the Oxford Union, and it was a very interesting talk because it was the first one in which a U.S. official has talked about when the, I mean, they don't say war on terror in the Obama administration, but I'll say that because that's what they mean, when the armed conflict ends. And uh, what Johnson said was this, that uh, the goal is to reach a certain tipping point where al-Qaeda is no longer able to launch a strategic attack against the United States. And now I want to quote from his speech. At that point, we must be able to say to ourselves that our efforts should no longer be considered an armed conflict against al-Qaeda and its associated forces. Uh, rather, a counterterrorism effort against individuals who are the scattered remnants of al-Qaeda. And then he says, and that's a matter for law enforcement, not for military force. So when al-Qaeda is destroyed, the tipping point is reached, and it can no longer function as an organization, then the armed conflict switch gets flipped to the off position. The law enforcement switch gets flipped to the on position. I, I welcome the fact that finally... Uh, a U.S. government official has said that there's some point at which the conflict ends. But I think that the point that he describes is unrealistic. It says, in effect, that there has to be zero risk of al-Qaeda functioning as an organization that could launch another 9-11. But there's never going to be zero risk. 9-11 was not a high-technology operation. It was a sophisticated and well-planned operation. But the idea that all risk of this organization being able to carry it out, if we even know what this organization is, I think is hopelessly unrealistic. Um, and that means that the war doesn't end and the destruction, even if every single attack is proportionate and every single attack is lawful, which I'm assuming is not true, but let's give it the benefit of the doubt. It just keeps piling up. Now, to me, that's a limitation of just war theory and the associated body of law, international humanitarian law themselves. They leave states to define when it's over. And if states define when it's over as risk down to zero, then it's never over. 
I've been talking mostly about just war theory, but I haven't been saying very much about drones themselves. And I'd like to talk a little bit about drones themselves because I think there's significant emotion around the subject of drones. There's a lot of unclarity about what is and isn't the real problem with drones. Uh, and it might help if we sort out several strands of what it is that bothers us about drones, if we're bothered about drones, which I assume, assume at some level everybody is. Um, so one of them is that there's a kind of dystopic Terminator-like idea of inanimate objects hunting down human beings. And uh, that's a kind of creepiness factor, uh, which I actually think is not the most important most salient factor, because the fact is drones are weapons of war that kill at a distance, but so are manned aircraft. So is artillery. In its day, so was the longbow. So was the crossbow. I mean, in the 12th century, the church banned crossbows because they thought that it was immoral that an armed knight, heavily trained, aristocratic, could be picked off at a distance by some peasant with a longbow or a crossbow. You know, killing at a distance, that's, that's just the creepiness factor. And, you know, unfortunately, the drone technology is not only owned by the United States. Everybody's got it. The United States isn't the biggest, I mean, it doesn't spend more money than, it spends less than half the money that's spent in the world on drones. I assume that uh, drug cartels have their own drones. It's like nuclear weapons where once the genie is out of the bottle, technologically speaking, it's not going back in. And I think we're going to have to learn in some way how to live with drones. But I don't see this as being, them being morally on a different order than a bomber, certainly not than a bomber with a nuclear, war, nuclear weapon. So what else is there? Well, there's the idea that the pilot is playing a video game somewhere in Nevada or somewhere in Florida, sitting at the screen. Um, I actually went to at one point talked with a friend who had visited uh, the command where this was going on who said that it was the oddest thing to see somebody sitting at a screen um, saying, there, pointing at a screen. This was actually this was a surveillance drone that was guiding a ground operation. Not that door, not that door, that door, and then suddenly on the screen a big explosion and the door disappears, and then the pilot says, oh, got to go, got to pick up my kid at primary school and takes off the headset. Now, that seems really dangerous. Why? Because it takes all the risk out of the war and it makes it too easy. And in particular, there's seems like there's this idea of a video game war. Now, what the U.S. military says in response, and I'm not competent, I don't know this firsthand, I'm not competent to judge this, is look, there's actually, this is less video game than traditional aerial bombardment because, in fact, the drone pilot keeps the video feed on and actually goes down and sees what the damage is, whereas somebody, a traditional bombardier, bombs away and then turns the airplane around and flies off and never has to engage with the fact that there's human damage. And uh, there have been mixed reports about how much stress drone pilots experience from seeing the after effect of their handiwork. But it's, uh, I'm assuming that it's not negligible. And so this doesn't strike me as the most morally significant fact about the drones. 
I think there's this sense that if, if the United States government knows enough about this particular person to target them for, with a drone, then they know enough to send in the special forces and arrest them, to capture, not kill. And it's, so this argument goes, morally required to capture, not kill, and legally required to capture, not kill. And I'm not sure that this is a particularly good argument either because it doesn't take into account the dangers that are posed to innocent civilians by a capture operation. And it seems to me that it might be much worse to send uh, special forces in to try to capture somebody and then shoot their way out, much more dangerous to civilians than the drone operation. And if the point is to protect innocent civilians, I'm not actually certain that that's that's a... that's a benefit. Now, the biggest, it seems to me that under both the law and morality of war, the two main questions about drones, about those kinds of killing operations, are first, whether they're militarily necessary. Does self-defense require them? And the second, does proportionality permit them? I've criticized proportionality as a standard, but it is the legal standard. And the sad answer is, we've got no way of telling because all of the information is secret and it's all kept under wraps. And I, and I think this is really one of the most devastating problems with the U.S. drone program. Now, the, the story that I began with, Obama sitting around on Terror Tuesdays, was the end point of a series of little releases of information that had been trickling out for a while. There was first... Uh, a great deal of frustration because the United States government wouldn't admit that it had a drone program and therefore people who wanted to say, what's your legal justification, couldn't get one because how can you justify something that you're not even admitting that you've got? Uh, Finally, in 2010, the State Department legal advisor made a first stab at giving a justification behind U.S. policies, uh, but it was so vague, it was basically the United States is law-abiding and we comply with the law of war and Article 51 of the United States Charter justifies it. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Good night and good luck. Um, The next was a speech by the National Security Advisor in 2011. Then a month later, there was a revelation in the New York Times of a secret Justice Department memo that had an elaborate justification for drone killings, but it was never released and has still not been released. Um, There was a speech by um, the Attorney General this past March that gave more legal details than we've ever seen before, and then there was Jay Johnson's speech at Oxford last week. But all of this is just a drip, drip, drip of ideas without any actual understanding of the most significant decision. How are people chosen for these kill lists? I mean, look, from one point of view, any targeted killing operation is an extrajudicial execution without due process of law. Now, one of the routine counter-arguments is in an armed conflict, due process doesn't mean arrests, arraignments, defense lawyers, trials, evidence. But what does it mean? The answer is we haven't got the slightest idea what it means other than this anecdotal story about the president and his advisors sitting around with PowerPoint presentations and baseball cards with the faces of um, nominees for targeted killings on the baseball cards. Um, Now, at the very least, one would want within 
those deliberations, somebody who is an institutionalized devil's advocate who is arguing this is not the right person, you don't have enough evidence, is there such a person? We don't know. Um, Philip Alston, who is the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Executions, wrote a, an important article last year arguing that, in fact, one of the biggest threats to the rule of law is not the drone program itself, but the secrecy and utter unaccountability. Because, Alston said, accountability not just within the United States government, but to the international community is what the rule of law is all about. And I think that that's, uh, that's absolutely right. All we have so far are assurances that whatever internal processes the U.S. government uses are conscientious, undertaken in good faith, evidence-driven. These are uh, people of great integrity. They're very, they study Augustine and Aquinas. They're very reluctant to do this, and so on. So you think, well, this is sounding good. I don't know if it's true or false, but maybe we should take their word for it. Until the clock struck 13 last week, and there was an article, once again in the New York Times, saying that as the presidential election approached, and it looked as though Mitt Romney might win, there was frenzied activity within the U.S. government to actually write a rule book for the drone program because we trust ourselves, but what if this guy wins and he's the one who's in charge? Let's codify things. Now, this was published on November 24th. It means that all along, the, notwithstanding these reassurances, there hasn't been a rule book. Okay, so here's the final, let me just conclude with uh, some final worries. I think that, uh, uh, let me read a little excerpt from the Johnson speech last week. We cannot and should not expect Al-Qaeda and its associated forces to all surrender all lay down their weapons in an open field or to sign a peace treaty with us, they are terrorist organizations. Nor can we capture or kill every last terrorist who claims an affiliation with Al-Qaeda. Now, he gets it that Al-Qaeda is not a formal organization. And he seems to get it that anybody who claims to be an Al-Qaeda member can't be captured or killed because that means capturing or killing maybe till the end of time, I mean, till the, you know, the indefinite future. Um, but they're not drawing the conclusion from this that, that they're too focused on the baseball cards and the PowerPoint presentations to ask what the point of this is. One day after the Obama sitting reading Aquinas article was published, the Washington Post published a, an article about Yemen saying that, in fact, the drone program in Yemen was infuriating so many Yemenis that it was the greatest recruiting tool that al-Qaeda had had, and al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula was growing and growing. So lost in the baseball cards is the idea that somehow this is an operation that could succeed. And here I'll just mention that one of the other classical conditions of just war theory going back to the 17th century is that it has a reasonable chance of success. Without that, the use of force simply isn't justified at all. So let me thank you and stop. And thank you. Thank you. you have been listening to a lecture given at SOAS, arranged by the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy. Mm-hmm.